You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Welcome to The Good GP. My name's Sean Stevens, and today we're going to be taking a Cook's tour of eye disease. I think that eye disease is one area of medicine that is not taught very well in medical school, and much of it is actually treated by clinicians other than GPs or ophthalmologists. We've decided to learn a bit about primary care eye disease by interviewing orthoptist and relationships manager for Vision Australia, Nabil Jacobs. Hi, Nabil. Hi, Sean. Okay, Nabil, let's start with the basics so we're all on the same page. What's the difference between an ophthalmologist, orthoptist, optometrist, and optician? Okay, so generally I guess you can look at it in terms of a Venn diagram. We all overlap a little bit. So as you know, the ophthalmologist is the eminent person in eye care, surgery, optical disease uh, prevention and treatment. The orthoptist's role is traditionally more of an ocular motility diagnosis and management, and the orthoptist works very closely alongside an ophthalmologist. So you'll see an orthoptist in a hospital eye department or a private ophthalmic clinic. As we all know, the optom is often referred to as the GP of the eye, who's the primary care frontline expert and uh, their general expertise lies in more the optical side of eye care Uh, but of course as you know are trained very well to pick up eye disease and in some cases treat and use drugs now and the optician depending on where you are in the world an optician here in Australia might mean an optical dispenser which is a a TAFE background and they're the people that say work at OPSM or spec savers or an optometrist practice who are helping you fit the glasses but in, I know in the UK at times an optometrist can also be referred to as an optician. So I, I hope that clears it all up a little bit. Okay. What are the common adult eye diseases encountered in everyday practice? All right. So I think primarily you're going to see things like cataract. If we all lived long enough, we'd get cataracts. Diabetic retinopathy, um, one of the uh, terrible side effects of uh, poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. Macular degeneration is a big one. Also, glaucoma is quite common, but once again, it's, uh, it's pretty successfully treated nowadays. So they're primarily the, the four or five major ones you're going to see in everyday practice uh, that most people will um, um, suffer. Okay. In clinical practice, people dealing with one organ will often see repeated errors made by people dealing with multiple conditions in multiple types of patients. Are there any conditions in adults that you think GPs should be particularly aware of, what Professor John Murtagh calls pitfalls and often missed? All right, look, there are quite a few diseases out there and um, to name them all would take forever. But things like the unilateral red eye um, is a very important one to look out for. That's one that needs special attention because it has could have severe consequences. But generally, when we're looking at a GP practice in the eye, I think a lot of the diagnoses require specialist equipment to make a definitive diagnosis. So often, whilst the GP may be quite aware of the situation, often not having that equipment there is going to make it a little bit difficult to delve further into that investigation um, and make a, a definitive diagnosis. So having the luxury of uh, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist to refer to um, may be the way to go there. Yes, I think that's the advantage of a GP, knowing the patient and also knowing the local referral channels. If your local optometrist or ophthalmologist knows that you're a decent GP and you're not just going to refer in every person who complains of not being able to see properly, then you'll see people straight away. The other thing is that optometrists can do a great deal of screening, so if you're concerned and can't get an ophthalmologist opinion straight away, I often call my local optometrist. 
Yeah, and there's one other thing when when it comes to children. There, I think one thing that's often missed is uh, strabismus. So if the GP's ever in doubt, that that probably requires a little bit more investigation, and that one is often missed um, in in GP practice, and sometimes even in optical practices if it's a very small strabismus. But as you know, with children um, up until about the age of eight or nine, there's not very much you can do after that age. So that, that they're really important ones to get on top of too. You often get parents, particularly with kids in their first year of life, complaining of strabismus. How should we be examining for that and how should we be managing that at a general practice level? All right. So there's, you've got, as you know, you've got the epicanthus phenomenon. So if you pinch the nose, the epicanthus, sometimes that'll show up that the eyes are actually straight when parents are worried that the eye's turning in. The other thing you can do is a, a very quick red reflex with your torch and that reflex should be slightly nasal in both eyes equally. If you're unsure, it doesn't look right to you or there's a horizontal uh, and vertical um, issue there. Um, just refer that on. But they're, they're two usually really good things to do in the first year of life. And hopefully the community nurse has already picked those up um, because the kids do go through a screening. But if not, they're two really fantastic tests um, to be able to undertake very, very quickly. Thinking of the adults then with those conditions you mentioned that cause low vision, are there any quick screening tests that we can do for adults in general practice that might pick those up sooner rather than later? All right, so it, it would depend on which disease. So for things like macular degeneration, definitely an Amsler grid. I'm not sure if they're kept in GPs, but it's a, it's a square grid and you ask the patient to look, you know, cover one eye and look at the centre dot and to tell you if, if any of those lines vertically or horizontally look a little bit warped or distorted um, or if they're reading a straight line, do the letters um, jump up and down or the line not uh, continue on straight? That's usually an indication of maybe macular uh, degeneration there. Um, you can download many, many apps um, and uh, there's definitely an Amsler Grid app there that you could um, download. The other thing is cataract. I mean, if your patient is coming in and often we'll see this in ophthalmic practice, patients come in with very heavily caked on makeup if it's a female, for example, um, and that's often a very good sign that there's an advanced cataract happening. The other thing is if they're coming in complaining of glare or photophobia um, or things being washed out, once again, it's more probing a little bit in the history taking of what symptoms they're having um, or, you know, having to sit closer to the TV or um, that's usually meaning that there's an issue there. Diabetes, they're going to probably complain of fluctuating vision, as we know. Diabetes doesn't just affect the retina um, with exudate and hemorrhage. Um, because of the neovascularization, it can also affect the physiology of the cornea, which does the vast majority of the focusing of the eye. Depending on their sugar control, that can fluctuate and it can be better and worse uh, throughout the day. Okay, what about if we turn the same question to paediatrics? What conditions do you see every day in paediatric practice? All right, so predominantly with children in, in our low vision services that we're seeing, strabismus can be a big one. But in terms of um, what we see at Vision Australia, retinal disease, that's non-retinopathy um, of prematurity background, is probably the largest. And there are myriads of different types of retinal disease there. Optic nerve atrophy, hyperplasia, albionism, infantile motor nystagmus, uh, there's cortical vision impairment, and of course, retinopathy of prematurity, and also cataract related. And you can also, as you know, have glaucoma as a child. So these are all things that you can see. And 
very, very important to be able to pick up with paediatrics, especially because as we all know, we want these children who otherwise have no comorbidity or uh, a, a major syndrome, meet their milestones as close as possible to a sighted child if their sight's being affected. Would you be able to give us that in your clinic that parents might identify as the first symptom or sign that they see with kids with one or more of those conditions? Okay, so generally a lot of these conditions are going to be diagnosed early on, but if these things do develop, say, um, uh, as the child is growing, sitting closer to the TV, clumsiness, not wanting to join in activities, not wanting to play sport, not seeing something that everyone else is seeing. So all telltale signs that something's perhaps going on in the visual sphere that requires further investigation. The teacher's complaining that they might not be seeing at school or sometimes complaining that, well, Johnny can see sometimes, but then at other times he pretends he can't see. So they may be accused of malingering when perhaps they might have a peripheral defect um, or a central defect, but can see peripherally or centrally alternatively. So things like, if I have a peripheral defect, my mobility is going to be affected, so I'm not going to want to play sport. If I have a central vision defect, I'm not going to be able to read or recognise faces or do more detailed things. So they're sort of often things to look out for with regard to children. I find also that parents are quite good at taking kids off to optometrists when there are visual issues identified. So a lot of those diagnoses are made outside of general practice and more in the optometrist's office. Certainly. And there's also the, um, as we mentioned before, relating to the apps, technology these days is everywhere and children are focusing up close and kids have a very powerful accommodative reflex and can focus things for hours as opposed to us as we get older. And there's the theory there that the induction of myopia because of that increased close work can also start to take effect. Turning closer to home now, can you please explain for me the difference between Vision Australia, Guide Dogs and other state-based low vision services? All right, so Vision Australia came about about 17 years ago and it was pretty much an amalgamation of a lot of the East Coast blind and low vision service organisations. So what the endeavour there was to be able to offer a national service that's single database, a one-stop shop, and for want of a better term, a cradle-to-grave service, so that any patient that was referred to us or a client as we refer to them when they get to us was able to be dealt with comprehensively. Guide Dogs are another fantastic organisation. They didn't join that fold. They chose to remain independent, and they generally operate independently depending on which state they're in. So in WA, they're called Visibility. They do fantastic work, but probably don't have the full suite of services, say, that someone like Vision Australia does. But what they do do is excellent, and we often have patients, clients who see both organisations. And then, for example, here in New South Wales, we have the Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind Children, who very much specialise in children with vision and hearing impairments. So I hope that sort of clarifies it a little bit. So Vision Australia is probably more national in its service delivery. Okay. Yeah, in terms of resources available for people with vision impairment, is there a collation of services that are available on the internet or is that something that people are going to have to access through the Vision Australia website? They can access pretty much everything through the Vision Australia website. We have a suite of 12 services um, that pretty much will answer 99.9% .9 of somebody's needs who is suffering from low vision. So, and, and they're readily accessible. Anybody can refer, but of course, people generally um, tend not to do it. And um, when people are diagnosed with a, a progressive eye condition or have a sudden acute eye condition, there's often that grieving, that loss. Um, so often they don't actually refer themselves. So that's why we find it's really, really important for GPs, the conductor of the person's uh, general health, um, to make sure that 
if there is a vision issue there, that Vision Australia um, is invited to be along or at least the seeds planted so that that person knows that there are services, aids, equipment, assistance with funding uh, to be able to um, get the services that you need, essentially to be able to live the life that you choose. So when and how can a GP refer to Vision Australia? All right. So, well, well currently our Victorian um, GP uh, cohort has um, on best practice and medical director, Vision Australia will come up. The fact sheets um, that we've, we've put on those, they type in glaucoma or macular degeneration. Otherwise, we're available on HealthShare. And we also do have fact sheets that are available to GPs in their day-to-day practice. Otherwise, if you're not able to access it that way, it's very simple, visionaustralia.org, all one word, lowercase. And on the homepage, there's a quick refer my patient here. Um, And it's minimal parameters. If you have a a medical letter to attach, that's fine. If not, we can follow up. But it's very, very important that if the client or the patient isn't ready for referral, that at least that seed's planted so that they know there is a little bit of hope there. And the GP sort of going, delving a little bit more into this person's life, especially if they're elderly, single, living at home. There are two aspects of um, referral that are crucial for normal people, let alone people with low vision. And that's falls risk. They're twice as likely to fall. And that's already very, very high for the elderly population. And mental health issues are also significant. They're three times more likely to go into depression. And that definitely will touch on suicide with some clients when they do lose their vision. So for those two points, factors alone, it's really important that the GP take the time to at least talk about Vision Australia or the fact that there are services out there that can assist their clients. That goes to show people just never one condition or one organ I think that is where the GP comes in, dealing with the depression, dealing with the falls risk, dealing with the visual issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and most of our clients are over 65, 70, so they're on usually on a pension, and as soon as you mention the word referral, they may freeze and think, I can't afford another referral, but we don't want there to be any barriers to referral, so we can actually physically go out to see them in their nursing home, their home, workplace, school, university, We will perform an assessment and we'll actually assess them for funding through the NDIS and actually All My Aged Care, which we are a provider so that we we have the portal um, on Vision Australia's network and we can help them get the funding and do all the paperwork for them. And when it comes to that, unfortunately, we need an ophthalmic letter. It has to come from the ophthalmologist. But please remember that a GP's letter supporting an NDIS plan for services and equipment and aids carries a lot of weight as well. Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned cost. That is one of the first questions that patients have for us. What is the cost for a referral to Vision Australia? There is no cost. Our heart is always much bigger than our pockets as a not-for-profit charity. But as we said, we are experts now with the NDIS genesis. We've become um, very, very au fait with putting plans together for NDIS and also accessing home care packages. So normally the clients aren't paying anything. But that said, we won't um, turn anybody away. So um, we, we don't want cost to be a barrier. So often people might say, oh, my vision's fine. As, as we've all seen in clinic, and a daughter or somebody butts in and says, mum, you've fallen over three times this week. But reassure people that, you know, it's, you know, you've got nothing to lose. They're going to come and see you. They're going to um, do an assessment. They're going to tell you about what they can provide and they'll help you get the funding for it so it won't cost you anything. And they might say, well, okay, I've got nothing to lose in that case. So it's, I guess it's the delivery of how you present something like Vision Australia to a client. Thanks very much for being part of the Good GP, Nabil. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. 